AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is AlienLegacy.html. That's right. And we are here today to talk about the epic space adventure Starship Troopers. No, wait, that's not right. You'll understand why I'd be confused later on in the show, though. No, this is the James Cameron movie about the ship that gets destroyed. Oh, Titanic. No, 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 this is about that really famous James Cameron sequel. Oh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. No, 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 this is the one with the aliens and Sigourney Weaver. Oh, <laughs> Avatar. I think you get the point we're trying to make here, folks. So, Alien Aliens is absolutely one of my favorite films ever. It's such a tough call for me because every time I watch Alien, it's my favorite movie. And then I watch Aliens and then that's my favorite movie. And then I watch Mary Poppins and that's my favorite movie. And then I watch Aliens start the cycle over. Okay, but like Mary Poppins versus Aliens would actually be epic. I can't even imagine the ways she would use like sidewalk chalk to cut off their arms and stuff. Just a spoonful of your acid blood. It would be one of my absolute favorite films ever. I also need to point out, tangent, side note. Mary Poppins is actually a really powerful sorceress. We're doing this here? We're doing this? I mean, it's it's a canon that I love. We're doing this here? Fine. Okay. Fine. Different strong lady with an unending bag of aliens. So this is the first time we meet the queen. Yes. This movie did so much to expand the mythos of aliens and to bring in so many new characters. And I realized that as I was saying that, it's because no one survived the first one. Yeah, but no one survives this goddamn movie either. It it starts to feel like a very futile franchise. Why are you even investing, you know? It is for the most part true that every Alien film, with one or two minor exceptions, gets an entirely new cast film to film. I don't necessarily know that that is one of the strengths of the franchise, because it works to varying degrees. The later film's replacement casts feel a little less strong. But James Cameron's Aliens is one of those projects that's just like, it's Chris Claremont's giant size has X-Men completely reimagining the original five. It's the revitalization of Doctor Who, giving new light to the idea of the Time Lords and what it means to be the Doctor. And especially after reading so much about the things that were going on behind the scenes and the many ways in which this film almost did not get made, I appreciate it even more. Alien was an amazing film, especially for its era and when the studio still didn't believe in the marketability of science fiction franchises franchises, but Aliens had a much harsher uphill battle to fight to get produced, and knowing that it wasn't finished until the week that it was released, I can't even believe that they were able to pull something together that I enjoyed as much as I did. I feel like you can't really talk about James Cameron and sequels without talking about Titanic and Titanic 2, which are of course about a group of animals stowed aboard the Titanic, singing musical numbers. One of my favorite segments 
is the rap number. Don't make fun. The animated Titanic movies are cinematic gold. I especially love the one where a giant squid saves the Titanic. Like, wow. Oh, or the one where the dog pees on that guy. What was that about? Sorry, tangent. I think the most interesting thing about the uphill struggle that aliens faced is I'm so confused by it. Alien made crazy money. In fact, before we can talk about aliens as a proper sequel to Alien, I think we need to take a moment to talk about the unofficial sequels to Alien. Mm, I love stuff like that. I can't wait until we get to Star Wars. I want to talk about the unofficial novel sequel that came in between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. It's bananas. Speaking of bananas, Alien 2 on Earth was also known as Alien Terror. It was a movie made in 1980 in Italy and it came out before they had a chance to make sure that Alien was legally theirs as a title and it has like nothing to do with the original film and it's not necessarily well liked. My favorite quote is James Cameron once summed up Aliens as 40 miles of bad road and a critic once referred to Alien 2 as 84 minutes of bad period. Woof. That is... It is absolutely bonkers. It's all new characters and it just doesn't really work. There's elements in common such as rappelling down holes and there's, you know, aliens in it, but it's not a good movie, you guys. That is frightening. The aliens on the cover look vaguely like, I don't know, like a skinned Mr. Snuffleupagus. It's not a good look. No. But what was a good look was James Cameron, hot off of Terminator, promising he'd be back with a sequel to Alien. Now, okay, I'm going to be really honest. I think I've seen Terminator 2 Judgment Day, the like 4D experience more times than I've actually seen any Terminator movie. I've seen bits of all of them, but I don't know that I've seen any of them all the way through. I've seen segments of the TV show, which I forgot about until today. We watched Terminator 2 in one of my high school English classes. I'm like 90% positive it was the science fiction course specifically, but like that that just feels so inappropriate still. I do agree. And I feel like I maybe need to give former governor of California and agent Doggett another chance because I feel like they intersect with so many things I love. And honest to God, Arnold Schwarzenegger is incredible for how hardcore he has come out in support of gay rights. And I think that's incredible. And he is amazing for that. And I just need to give props to, you know, like the first real mega bodybuilder for being so pro-queer. But back to aliens for a moment, I was not aware that in the same way Dune is directly responsible for Alien, that Terminator is directly responsible for Aliens. Yes, very much so. But let's take it back a little bit further than that and start at the very beginning with the first stumbling block that prevented us from getting Aliens any sooner. In 1979, David Geiler of Brandywine Productions stated that that they were intent on immediately making a sequel with the full support of 20th Century Fox president Alan Ladd Jr. Unfortunately, Ladd left Fox shortly thereafter amid a management restructuring, and the new management had no interest in a sequel, feeling that it would be too costly. By the time Brandywine settled their lawsuit against Fox regarding disbursement of alien profits in 1983, 
Yeah, that was apparently a thing that happened. Fox executives had renewed interest in a sequel. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine not wanting to make a sequel to this movie, despite the inherent confusion on how you might do one. The movie leaves off with only two, vaguely two, characters alive, floating in the ship that you didn't even spend the whole movie in. Well, apparently, what we got had always been the intention, which is something I did not know until I started doing this research. Guyler's original pitch for the sequel was a cross between the Walter Hill-directed film Southern Comfort from 1981 and The Magnificent Seven. I read about Southern Comfort. It's highly uncomfortable, and just do yourself a favor, don't. But Magnificent Seven, there's a thing that I think most people are familiar with, and I can kind of see where that's coming from. It was development executive Larry Wilson who came across James Cameron's screenplay for The Terminator and passed it on to the boys at Brandywine, and a fan of the original, Cameron went into self-imposed seclusion for days and came out with a 45-page treatment, which... Which wow. Which wow wow. Yeah, unfortunately, Fox management was still hesitant at that time and put the film on hiatus when Schwarzenegger had a scheduling conflict due to Conan the Destroyer that set back Terminator nine months. James Cameron wrote the first 90 pages of a script and Fox's new president at the time, Larry Gordon, was so impressed that he said Cameron could even direct if Terminator was a success because at the time, pretty much no one thought it was going to be. Schwarzenegger himself even has said in retrospect that he mostly took it assuming even if it doesn't do well, it's going to be such a small film that no one will even notice. And I feel like that sort of underground magic worked for Terminator from what I know of it, the same way it worked for Alien. This idea of this little movie that was hard to take seriously, but the people who worked on it sure did. Well, what's funny is, in some ways, even James Cameron did not. Once he learned that Aliens was something that he could potentially get, he openly admitted in an interview after Aliens came out that he spent much of his time making Terminator, thinking ahead to Aliens, and even said, quote, I remember when I was shooting a scene where, and then in parentheses it says the heroine, because at the time Sarah Connor was not a household name, where the heroine crawls through all this machinery, I thought, this will make a good dry run. I'll get some of this stuff worked out so I'll know how to do it. So he really mostly just looked at Terminator as a dry run for what he wanted to do with Aliens next. One of the things I find most fascinating about that is the way that James Cameron has had his hand in so many phenomenally huge cinematic universes, despite he himself not having a tremendously prolific output. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was very surprised when I was doing all my research for this episode and I found how few films he's actually directed in his career. In fact, in the last almost 20 years, the one film that has come out from him is Avatar. That's just so strange. And I think it's so interesting having this conversation about his influences. One of the things that people talked about was they felt as though Avatar borrowed heavily from Last of the Mohicans and Ferngull. At the same time, knowing that Cameron used Terminator to prepare himself for aliens and the fact that, you know, Titanic is based on a vaguely truish story, kind of. I mean, the Titanic part is real, but, you know, the Jack Rose part, not so much. I kind of wonder where else he took inspiration for some of these films. Well, something he drew heavy inspiration from for this film that I definitely see as a recurring theme throughout a lot of the things that he does is the Vietnam War, the disparity of technology between the superior American firepower and their inability to conquer the unseen enemy in Vietnam, as he put it. A lot of firepower and very little wisdom, and it didn't work, is his quote on the situation. And he illustrated this through the Colonial Marines' cocky attitudes and their confidence in their inevitable victory, only to have a rude awakening. Thinking about it, it's 
actually like he then goes to show the other side of that almost 25 years later in Avatar, where instead of it being from the perspectives of the invading Marines, it's that the natives that are being invaded who are the ones that he's championing. Wow. I'm, you know, I don't know that I'm a huge James Cameron fan, but I don't think you can argue there is a lack of art in what he does. I definitely agree. And I don't know that I'm a huge James Cameron fan, but I definitely think I'm a huge fan of James Cameron at the point in his life that he was making this film. He was only 31 and he was very much not embraced by the crew of this film. A lot of them had worked with Ridley Scott on Alien and were fiercely loyal and they felt like this 31-year-old Cameron was too young for them to take seriously. It's almost like he was the Gorman from Aliens to the rest of these colonial Marines and he even tried to show a screening to the British crew of the Terminator because it hadn't been released in the UK yet and most of them refused to show up. I love that you made the comparison to Gorman but I also think there's a comparison to be made to Ripley. Ripley has to fight to convince this powerful board that the alien threat really is real. That she really does need to come in and save them. Cameron was trying to come in and convince these people that he knew what he was doing. And you know what's really funny is that's that gosh that was just such a great segue into one of the other things that I learned about him that I really appreciated. Fox wanted Ripley out over a payment dispute with Sigourney Weaver and he fought for her. He refused to write a script that had no Ripley in it on the grounds that Fox had indicated Weaver had already signed on when he began the script and he wouldn't budge and eventually Sigourney Weaver obtained a $1 million salary for Aliens, which is a sum 30 times what she was paid for the first film. Unfortunately, despite that success for women in the industry, another conflict that was had on the set was Gail Ann Hurd, the producer, the person who had essentially given James Cameron his big break, by the way, by obtaining the rights for the Terminator and help getting it out there. They basically mocked her and said she was only receiving producer credit for being married to James Cameron. It's one of those things where I just find myself so confused by how it's even remotely possible for people working on a film like this to not see the value you in a woman. You should never underestimate someone who is there and has experience. And it's so funny because she was the producer. She was the one who could actually get stuff done. James Cameron was a dreamer who had these incredible ideas and I am not taking from him his talent, but talent isn't everything. You need some get it doneness. And it sounds like Gail Ann Hurd had it. Well, the joke's on all of them because Gail Ann Hurd's production company, Pacific Western Productions, which eventually became Valhalla Entertainment, is best known for producing AMC's The Walking dead. And in a really fun connection to our show, that production company also produced Ang Lee's Hulk, Tom Jane's The Punisher, The Incredible Hulk starring Ed Norton, and Punisher Warzone. If I'm not mistaken, Punisher Warzone was the film that had writers from the MCU? Yeah, it's the guys who wrote, I think, the first draft of Iron Man. So it's all connected. It's a big tangled web and we're all going down on this big boat. So I've talked a lot about the difficulties behind the scenes in production with the writer and the director and now we get to get to what is my favorite category of course the composer and we have a real shining star this episode James Horner who was an unbelievably prolific composer in his lifetime and whose music I'm sure you would recognize from your childhood and such classics as An American Tale Honey I Shrunk the Kids The Rocketeer Hocus Pocus Page Master Casper Jumanji what a sad and tragic end though that this incredible light from our childhood met he got labouched he got 
Aliad. He got big boppered. He is one of way too many people we have lost in an aviation accident. And I loved him so much. That was a hard day, specifically. Like, I'm, you know, not usually a celebrity culture person, so obviously mine are always the more obscure ones. And it's so interesting because last episode we talked about a very different kind of aviation accident associated with the composer. We discussed the Twilight Zone, and the Twilight Zone movie would later go on to accidentally behead some people oh, with a helicopter man. blade. So, man, gross. So this was a point in James Horner's career where he was really starting to pick up momentum. He'd worked with directors such as Oliver Stone and Wes Craven, but it wasn't really until 1982 with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan that he got his big break. Oh my god, what Wes Craven movie did he do? Deadly Blessing in 1981. So it's not even a Wes Craven I know, but I'm a big Wes Craven fan what I've seen. I guess now I need to investigate him a little bit further. Hey Joey, if you want to do a Wes Craven horror podcast, let me know. Yeah, have fun with that. After Wrath of Khan, James Horner started working with more and more prolific directors, Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Ron Howard in Cocoon, and he also did the score for Commando in 1985, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, so all these weird connections. I talked a little bit last episode about Jerry Goldsmith having several places in the top 25 AFI scores. Five of James Horner's scores were among the 250 nominees for the list, making him the most nominated composer not to make the list with his scores for Field of Dreams, Glory, Apollo 13, Braveheart, and Titanic. Number one, I can't believe we're talking about two different people that composed for Star Trek, two films in a row. Number two, how the fuck do you omit James Horner? Oh, we're also talking about two different people who composed for Disney attractions in a row because James Horner did the score for an attraction that opened two months after Aliens known as Captain EO. Are you kidding me? I'm not. He was also nominated for 10 Academy Awards, but only ever won two the same year, the same movie, best score and best song for Titanic. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I mean, I would prefer that James Horner's legacy not be exclusively tied to James Cameron, but it sounds like the two of them were very connected. Oh, you know what you were doing there, didn't you? James Horner was very much not pleased with the working atmosphere on Aliens. Six weeks from the release of the film, no dubbing had taken place on the film yet and Horner was still unable to see a completed version of the movie. In fact, he had written a final cue for the scene in which Ripley battles the Queen overnight only for James Cameron to rework the scene and him have to rewrite everything all over again. Not having much music production experience, Gail Hurd and James Cameron denied Horner's request to push the film back four weeks so he could finish and the score was recorded in roughly four days. Despite all of this, James Horner still described himself as 80% satisfied with the work and received his first Academy Award nomination for Best Original Score that year. He also received his second nomination that year for An American Tale. Well, I am excited to bring my own knowledge of the score for a moment, and I am eager to share with you a little bit of the history that went into this score. One of the most bizarre things is not only did James Cameron redo the scene, but the film editors altered the score's chronological flow, changing and removing music, pulling pieces in and out, and the original soundtrack at nine tracks is nothing compared to the 19-track complete version with bonus tracks as well. However, 
none of that beats the fact that this score has been used in over 24 other films. That's wild to me, though, that they were, like, editing the score around. I can't fathom how they made a coherent movie out of all of this. That's like the director of photography had to be fired because he refused to not dimly light the alien nest in the scene where the colonial marines first arrived there. James Cameron wanted it to mostly just be lit from, like, their packs to give it an atmospheric, you know, feel. And the guy, like, refused and they got into a fight and he had to be fired and half the crew walked out until Gail Hurd talked them back in. That's wild. Apparently he also struggled with dealing with a UK crew having set tea times where, like, production shut down for tea. I wonder if that's something that still happens now, and I kind of can't fathom that it is. For so many of these actors and so many of these sci-fi movies, it takes so long to get into the prosthetics, to set up these explosions right, to get all of these lighting and water and sound tricks down perfectly. I can't imagine everybody just being like, hey buddy, sorry you only have xenomorphed, but you're gonna take a break and sit for a minute because we need to sip some tea. I don't get it. I know that they love their tea over there though, so sure, if, if it's what y'all want, enjoy that tea. So it sounds to me like both Alien and Aliens have had a striking amount of behind-the-scenes influences and situations that led these movies to being the incredible creatures that they are. Keba, was there anything more that happened behind the scenes at Aliens that we should know about? There is actually one remaining factoid that I would say links Alien and Aliens in an utterly bizarre way. There were three scripts that James Cameron was working on almost simultaneously. Aliens, The Terminator, and Rambo First Blood Part 2, though it was eventually extensively rewritten by Sylvester Stallone. The score for that film was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. I can't make this stuff up. And actually another weird connection that we can make here is James Cameron was at one point working on a rather ill-fated and internet maligned Spider-Man script. And didn't James Horner do one of the scores to one of the Spider franchises that isn't Tommy Holly? Yeah, the Andrew Garfield ones, actually. And if you really want to kick this all the way back to the very beginning of this BTS, one of the final things that James Horner worked on in his lifetime was the score for the recent remake of The Magnificent Seven. It was something he had been working on in secret and was released posthumously. So, huh. That's only disappointing because, you know, you always want every creator to have the chance to, you know, interact with their work and you never want to hear anybody miss out on that. I also want to point out that something really interesting is that while Geiger is responsible for creating the alien, Geiger is only credited for the creation of the creature in this film. He would go on to create new aliens for the third film, but not this one. I have an answer. I have an answer. Answer me, answer me. It's that there were no new aliens. The only new creature in this movie was the queen, and James Cameron had already done some sketches of what he wanted the queen to look like, so they just didn't have a reason to financially bring Geiger back and design one alien that James Cameron already knew what he wanted to look like. That's amazing. I really like that there's even a reason that the kind of master behind the idea of the xenomorph, because each one of these films, as we've discussed, has their own unique atmosphere and feeling. It is very clear that you are trapped in a single place in Alien, and that Aliens is an expansive, I love the comparison of a warfare sort of vibe. Alien 3 is a prison escape kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit, kind mm. of. Alien 4 is very 90s post-cyberpunk, it's just But each one of these films has their own feeling, and the thing that is the driving force connecting them is the relationship between Ripley and the alien. And if it weren't for Geiger, there would be no alien. Oh, absolutely. And it's not that James Cameron didn't love and respect everything Geiger 
Gallagher did for the design. He was an enormous fan of the first film. In fact, it was one of the things that inspired him to continue to pursue the line of filmmaking. He recalled in that 1986 interview I quoted earlier how sitting in the theater and seeing the reactions of the people who had no idea that chestburster scene was coming. And even in 1986, you didn't have the same readily spoiled culture that we have today. So the fact that he was marveling at 1979's culture and feeling like if he could make audiences feel that way, that's all he wanted to do as a director. In the very beginning, one of the things we commented on on Alien is that it gave us a surreal feeling that we kind of compared to the Star Wars crawl. This opposite idea. The big fanfare is replaced by eerie silence and awkward violins and the big beautiful blue letters are replaced by these very clean, clear, almost alien forms of lines. But Aliens, once again, uses its title sequence to kind of let you know what movie you're watching. Yeah, I definitely immediately found the opening far less atmospheric, but that's because it's sort of just jolts you right into the plot. Yeah, it's that glowing blue. It's that sense of electricity that's being conveyed to the audience by the logo. Cameron is somebody who, as an artist, a very talented artist, is an esthetician. He knows how to make things look beautiful. And one of the best things he did was gave Aliens its own visual identity right away. There's a nod to the first film in The Finding of Ripley, but outside of that, it very much feels like its own visual narrative. It's more like it's reflecting the original film than copying it. The way the robot probe finds Ripley, it echoes Kane finding the egg on LV-426, right down to the blue mist. There's an invader that comes to her alien ship because of a distress call and wakes her up, setting the plot into motion. And they're immediately talking about how whether or not they're going to make money on it, which reflects back onto the conversation between Parker and Brett. Are we going to get our share? Mm, Good point. Everything Cameron did was from the point of view of a fan. And I actually really love that. This doesn't seem like one of those situations where when J.J. Abrams took Star Trek, he said he only ever took it because he was never going to get Star Wars, lol. But here, Cameron didn't take Aliens because he couldn't get his hands on Doctor Who. He took Aliens because this was the alien he wanted to talk about. And you know, when you start talking about sequels created by different creators than the original, you need to talk about whether or not it plays on the existing mythos or adds new mythos. I think Cameron did a really Really beautiful job striking a balance. Nothing he did necessarily made me feel like he invalidated anything about Alien. But Aliens has its own identity. It has its own feel. And it's one of the reasons that it's easy to say these are two separate movies that I love differently. I do not love Alien the way I love Aliens. I think Alien is about the survival of the human spirit. But I think Aliens is about the survival of Colony. I think the only thing that Cameron did in Aliens that threw me was how easily Ripley took to military combat. And I think that's, if anything, something that he expanded on better than the original, because as you elaborated when I talked to you about it, that's something that we should have gotten from the first film. The idea that that was something that these semi-militarized truckers from space did. That's part of the original canon. And I don't think that was something I fully got from the first film. I think because the cast was so limited so quickly, there wasn't really a lot of people to militarize. 
franchise. For the bulk of the final third of the film, it was Parker and Lambert, and only one of those people was competent. And that's actually a humongous striking difference between Alien and Alias. Alien, none of those people are built for this. Aliens, there's less incompetence, but like Kevo pointed out earlier, the hubris on these characters frequently is the thing that leads to their demise. Aliens is about a bunch of headstrong military officers and agents working to do the best they can with a deeply uninformed sense of what's going on. And I think something that's really interesting is that their conflict is in many ways completely separate from the first new major character that we are introduced to in this film, Paul Buckman. I mean, Carter Burke. Absolutely. And I'm not trying to pick on Paul Reiser, but you know, sometimes tears and sorrow are all the things you've got. And just when you think you're all about, wait, is that Kate and Allie? I yeah. thought that was My Two Dads, but I think that's Kate and Allie now that I'm thinking about it. I didn't watch My Two Dads. I would oh, know. Oh, you can count on me. No matter what you do, you can count on me. I'm from Sayreville and Greg Evigan is from Sayreville and the other dad on My Two Dads is from my town. Oh, that's so cute. And the daughter went on to be on Step by Step. Day by day. Fresh start over. Different hand to play. Okay, so funny story. I really did think those lyrics were French fries over, different as you play. And I just kept thinking to myself, none of that makes particular sense, but I guess in the theme song, they're like at an amusement park. It doesn't translate orally, the fact that I just had my head in my hand, but I did. You know, these things happen. So once Paul Buckman walks in with French fries, the movie takes a dramatic turn. Ripley is rescued from her escape pod, and when she wakes up in her hospital room, Cameron begins employing brilliant cinematic techniques to really get us where we need to be mentally. One of the first things we experience from Ripley's point of view is a nightmare that she's carrying a chest burster. I love this conflict of idea. And I love that it's a very real scene that morphs into a nightmare. You can almost picture that that scene probably really did play out, but instead of an alien, it was just a panic attack. She just had her entire world shattered. And her world is going to continue to be shattered. One of the most painful but important things about this movie is we come to discover Amanda, which evidently in the future, a nickname for Amanda is Amy, and she says Amy after we're told her name is Amanda. Okay, but Amanda Ripley passed away several years earlier. She was just a child when Ripley went off on this space hall and promised to be home for her 11th birthday. But her daughter died in her 60s on Earth, but in the future, why are people still dying in their 60s? Yeah, like, there's something about that, and, you know, she said the 11th birthday, but they also said she was floating in space for 57 years, so, like, her daughter can't have been any less than nine, I think, if that, like, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't math. I don't, I don't love that she only missed her by a year, and you could have just done a few more years at whatever. That's not the biggest problem in this film by any means, just you skate right by. I do want to point out that we will be coming back to Amanda Ripley in a very major way. Amanda Ripley has taken the fandom by storm, and she's captured their hearts in a series of video games, one of which, Alien Isolation, was recently adapted into a YouTube web series. So we will be covering that. So to add insult to injury in what has become a very sad life for Ellen Ripley, she is subjected to a boardroom of just like 12 smoking executives for some reason. 1986, man. And has her pilot's license revoked. And one of the things that I think is so great about this scene is it reads like a bad deposition from like a 90s law show in some ways. They're like, but I mean you blew stuff up. And she's like, damn it! There were factors! Damn it! And they're like, but I mean you're a woman and you're being unreasonable. And there's like women in there. There's that one woman that looks like a European Edna Mode. And yeah, she's like from stuff, but I haven't looked her up yet. Yeah. And she's just kind of like, oh. And Ripley's like, damn it! You will all be eaten! 
like my friends. And I just don't understand. Like, we're in the future. And it just doesn't seem like if we're far enough in the future that they can be doing these experiments on xenomorphs, that there would be no way that anybody would believe her. Well, one of the things that I came across in my research, God, that's one of my favorite reasons. There's a philosopher named Stephen Mulhall who has remarked that the four alien films represent an artistic rendering of the difficulties faced by the woman's voice to have itself heard in a masculine society as Ripley continually encounters males who try to silence her and force her to submit to their will. Scenes like the inquest in which Ripley's explanations for the deaths and destruction of the Nostromo as well as her attempts to warn the board are met with disdain. However, he does point out that Ripley's relationship with Hicks later in the films illustrates that Aliens is devoted to the possibility of modes of masculinity that seek not to stifle, but rather accommodate the female voice and modes of femininity that can acknowledge and incorporate something more or other of masculinity than our worst nightmares of it. Deep shit. And I gotta say, I only want to add to that Apone. Apone is another character who is hugely supportive of Ripley for the brief time that he is on the screen. And I think there's something beautiful about the way they all just accept Vasquez as a woman who is as strong as a man. They jibe her and they jab her, but they do that to each other. It's no unique ribbing. And while, yeah, there's a couple of lines that maybe feel either kind of transphobic or maybe a little bit homophobic. So I really do like the idea of thinking of these movies as feminist in order to explore ideas in toxic masculinity and sci-fi. One of the things that Ripley learns at the end of this inquest is that there is a shake and bake colony now on LV426, which I'm, I'm really so glad that shake and bake is going to survive to the future. I love shake and bake so much. So we flash to the colony known as Hadley's Hope on LV426. And really, this is just an establishing shot to show that there are people here who are all about to die. In so many ways, one of the things that Cameron does the best is creates landscapes and creates moving locations. When you think about a lot of Cameron's work, it has to do with claiming home and developing home. The Titanic was a brave new way to travel. He's somebody who likes to think about mobility in a very specific way. And I think creating this off-site colony on LV426 really drove home that this is not alien, where there was no idea of home. We were just on a ship. These people are trying to lay down roots and create home. And it's so important to establish all of the colonists as a whole, as something that we should care about when it comes to rescuing these people. I think the only thing that I would probably change about the opening is that I think it's a little bit too coincidental that Newt's family are the one that discover the engineer's ship. I know we needed to see Newt so that we would sympathize with her later as a character, but I think it probably would have been better if like she'd been the kid on the Whalen yutani big wheel or something. But about 21 minutes into the film, we get our first look at our favorite little guys, your little face hugger friends, Nico. You happy to see him again? I was, and I think one of the things I was happiest to see is the way we were introduced to the face hugger in this movie. It was very different than the way we were introduced to the facehugger in Alien. Mm. In Alien, we see an active moment of the facehugger claiming a victim. Here, we see that it's already too late and the infestation is too strong. There's a sense in Alien that because we watched it happen, we can stop it or defeat it. Here, it's already too late. They're not sending Ripley in to save anything. They're sending Ripley in because there's a situation that requires an expert who's dealt with these creatures and that expert only ever dealt with this creature by killing it. They know what they're doing. And that expert immediately says no. She says I'm not mad about this. Nice. But then she reconsiders and has a lovely 
lovely video chat with Carter, who for some reason is shirtless. I don't know why we have dealt with so many movies where men are needlessly shirtless in video calls, but okay, Obadiah Stane. I think it just, ah, back to Iron Man. It just, I think, humanizes the men in a sexual way and they're all directed by white men. I don't know, whatever. So she calls him and she makes him promise, 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 promise that they're going to destroy the aliens. And he's like, yeah, Will and Yutani always keeps their promises. And I do believe it is on that note that we are going to promise to pick this up in the next all-new HTML. On the Sulaco. Absolutely, man. I love that ship. But until then, Kevo, where can everybody find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet pretty much all the time, but the places you can specifically find my postings would be Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, or at the lovely Facebook page for this show, Search Husbands Talking More or Less on Facebook. Give us a like and you'll get all sorts of crazy crap that we're sharing way too often. You can also find the super fun, super cool, super inclusive superhero stories that we've been producing for nearly five years now over on KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me here on this amazing network on shows like Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris Podcast, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can also find me on shows like X's for Podcast, where along with Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, best friends Dylan and Kyle, we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise. We have multiple feeds covering things like The Dawn of X by John Hickman, a deep dive into classic Claremont, as well as a side trip down Thor on Thursdays. So keep an eye out for that. Not to mention, you can also find me on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, being kind of shirtless like those guys on video calls. And until we return to space. 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 <laughs>